you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today, I'm really happy to welcome tech lead of the human protocol, Alex Newman. Welcome to the show. So Alex, uh, noticeable that you don't refer to yourself as a founder or a co-founder. Um, really, I guess, uh, having spoken to you off air because you see yourself as a kind of core contributor and the the, the leader from a technology perspective. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I, I think we're going to get into a little bit about the nuances of being a founder to a crypto project compared to um being an active participant in open source generally, I know that's something that's been uh, been throughout your career. So uh, at a high level, um, Human Protocol is a globally distributed knowledge market. Um, Human Protocol powers distributed marketplaces, multiple um, of almost any variety. I'm sure we're going to get into the limitless potential of that. Interestingly, for humans to contribute their reasoning, skills and knowledge to help machines, which Initially, sounds counterintuitive. We always kind of think that actually um, it's uh, the machines that are helping the people, perhaps even displacing them. That's the kind of common narrative. And I think this is a, this is a really interesting uh, counter narrative to that. And effectively, it's a marketplace where machines can post jobs for people, for humans. So uh, several reasons why I'm really excited to have you on the show. So firstly, you're a very well-respected engineer and founder, you know, serial founder, um, with a focus on distributed systems way before uh, human protocol. Um, but, but consistently, there has been this kind of blockchain context, and I know you, you could be regarded as a, as a crypto OG, um, and we, we get into that a little bit in the origin story. Um, you founded several companies, uh, tech companies, you've had an exit, um, you've been contributing to open source systems for, and software for over 20 years, including Apache Foundation and uh, various others, uh, either as a committer or core committer. Um, you helped launch hcapture.com uh, via Intuition Machines. And again, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit later, which is effectively an anti-bot solution. Um, most listeners would have experienced, perhaps not knowingly, um, but would have encountered at some point in their journey about the web. And effectively, it protects their privacy. Um, and uh, is one of the most popular uh, recapture alternatives. Um, and so just to give context to the scale of, of that success, um, and this is, of course, all leveraging even protocol, uh, perhaps unwittingly to most, most users, but this now blocks bots for more than 14%, estimated 14% of the internet, which is insane. Um, so, you know, it must be a crazy thought to think that you've created something that has such impact on the internet population, global internet population, right? Yeah. And that's, that's really just, we quote that number, but that's, that's actually just one of our customers that gets us that number. We have tens of thousands of big companies signing up all the time. It's actually quite difficult to know, um, uh, what percentage of the overall internet, um, uh, that it is, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically every country, every territory, um, places that aren't recognized by the UN. <laughs> it's been, uh, it's been quite exciting. Wow. And so, you know, this is important because H capture is the flagship 
application for the human protocol. Um, but really, it's leveraging uh, the human protocol, that marketplace um, for the labeling of data. Um, and it completes millions of tasks every day. Um, so human protocol itself already has over 100 million users uh, across 249 countries and territories. I don't know how many there are globally. Um, surely that makes it one of the biggest dApps on the planet. I mean, I don't think many people would realize that, right? But it's, I mean, that's, uh, that's got to be by far the most used app on the internet. Yeah. And, and the biggest issue, of course, is, is getting, since we are Ethereum-based, getting that transaction rate more and more reasonable means more and more bulk updates and, and aggregations. But I mean, as far as uh, transaction count, um, since we've been on the side chain, I think we're running two or three X what MakerDAO's doing. Um, wow. So that does help us cut the costs. Um, we do have a, a modified, well, I don't want to talk about the, the tokenomics, but we, we, have a, we have a lot of things to kind of make that more efficient to run on uh, the blockchain. But we always joke that it's, it's by far the most popular blockchain app that um, crypto people didn't realize they were using, right? So most yeah. of the users of this protocol don't realize it's completely backed by a, a crypto market in terms of what jobs get launched and, and how it gets monetized. So, and I think, I think the one thing, the one thing I want to point out there is that, you know, you're right that it's a, it's a work pool and, and we provided those descriptions, but at, at an even more kind of primitive level, there's n never really been a way to quantize human labor. And it actually wasn't that important until robots came around. Now that we have humans interacting with machines, this quantization or measurement allows for more advanced uh, recruiting of resources, more efficient distribution of resources. So as much as quantizing human labor at first glance doesn't seem as cool. <laughs> Sounds dystopic almost. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's actually, it, it, is, it is a bit dystopic, but it, it enables um, a level of interaction between humans and computers that primarily empowers humans. So, you know, a good example of this is we don't worry about eyeglasses, um, you know, taking over the world. Although we are cyborgs when we wear eyeglasses, right? That, that is a machine and a human interacting in this way. And so for us, what the human protocol is, is being able to create the most generic interaction between those entities that assures the safety of the parties involved. So do we quantize human data, but we do it in a way that preserves your privacy. We do it in a way that, that gets you paid for giving up your data. Um, and so I think, you know, I just wanted to point that out that there's this, this kind of aha moment once you realize, wow, human labor was never divided this way. This is the first time we've done this. That's super important for machines to be able to digest and use and, and sell this stuff. And it seems like such a small thing, but I think it's it's actually like a remarkably important thing and, and very bizarre that it's never been done before. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, so we did an investment um, a few years ago in a company called Botanic, actually on the West Coast, founded by a guy called Mark Meadows, I think it was 2017, and they ended up um, open sourcing it. Um, the, the project was initially called Seed, but their idea was, I guess the starting point coming back to, to HCAPTURE was, that these botnets were out of control. Um, people could increasingly not trust their interactions with the internet, which was increasingly automated, which was being the interface was a bot. How can I trust the bot is it, what it says it is, representing who it says it is. And the exchange is equitable, or at least 
um, the terms of service are codified, like the terms of the engagement between the bot and the person are codified. And I had no idea as to the scale of the problem. I mean, in, intuitively you kind of do, but I, I guess it's one of those things you don't want to think about. And I remember earlier you were saying, you know, you kind of started out in security, but it was one of those topics where um, uh, you were basically just scaring everybody, going around scaring everybody, and and so uh, you know I, I think once you start to unpack, well, I was part of an that, organization that <laughs> that did that, right. but yeah, I did. Um, one of the interesting things that you said, which surprises me, is that so I can understand, and I know we don't want to spend too much time on botnets and hate capture, but I, I think given it's had such traction, given it is probably the most used app. On the planet, um, I think it's worth trying to understand why why that level of success. So you, you know, you mentioned that most people in crypto and people who aren't in crypto are using this thing and they're not aware about it. And I, I've always argued that's exactly what crypto should be. You know, I, I think people knowingly, you know, most people don't understand some of the fundamental protocols of the internet, and that's because they work really well at abstracting away that that kind of complexity. So I think this is a great example of what most protocols should be aspiring to. And so it's going to be interesting to, to, to see how how you think that's happened, whether by design or, or, or organically. But the thing that surprised me was you said that, so I can understand institutions understanding the scale of botnets and bots and bot traffic, um, but consumers, average consumers, users of the internet, because I'm, I'm until speaking to you at least anyway, I've, I've not been convinced. I know it's important to me, privacy is important. I know bots are a problem. I don't know if most people in my world care about these these things. And so I think, again, it's really interesting that um, you say there is demand and that by people adopting something like this, it's kind of got the principles of decentralization baked in. It's got the principles of user centricity baked in um, uh, and, you know, privacy preservation. But so, so, so how are the average internet user like coming across this, aware of it, because like, this is the first time I've heard a founder say, you know, people are understanding the problem and adopting it based on the problem. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's interesting. Now, part of that may just be because of the internet community I'm a part of. Um, there was a while where I, I helped the guys at Brave working on their their browser, so I, I know a lot of privacy centric people. Um, corporations and like, you know, I brought up Europe, we're starting to see more regulations. They're a lot more, more sensitive there. But I think, um, and I, I, you know, the, the last thing I would ever want to do, and you know, I, I don't even consider other capture providers necessarily competitors, but I think um, what, what, what's happened uh, online. And I actually think that it, it might have a good deal with Corona is that, people are starting to realize that their in-person interactions are very different than the interactions they're having online and on social media. They have a different tone. People interact with each other differently. And I think a lot of it was just people kind of writing it off that, oh, it's people online, you know, they're bad and stuff like that. But I think we were just kind of overwhelmed by only an internet-centric context of COVID. And then people kind of went outside and they were like, wait, hold on a second people are actually really nice. Look at this guy and, you know, the way that he relates to me, his body is saying that he cares about, you know, how I'm moving and he's, you know, like, and so I, and so I think what kind of happened 
is we were kind of drawn down the wall of despair <laughs> that this was humanity. We all popped out to have our summers, and then we're like, wait, human beings are pretty good. And I actually think that zeitgeist is a huge wake-up call for the whole world that the internet has, has an attitude problem. And the thing is, is people are quite confused about what's causing this. But when they actually enter a realm that respects their privacy, that block bots effectively, these kind of smaller communities, and I'm starting to see people pop up all uh, online, um, it, they, they realize that a lot of these interactions are fake. And then, and then when they actually bring in you know, the captions and they're actually blocking bots and all of those types of things on those, in those communities, they very quickly see how things change. So I, I really think it's just um, certain things just get in the air, you know, like the million monkeys theory. And a couple of years ago, I don't know what it was because I don't think it, Snowden was enough to do it. I don't think anything was really enough to do it. But a couple of years ago, and especially during Corona, this stuff became more and more important to people. And it's hard for me to say why it came into that zeitgeist, but it's overwhelming. Like it, when we talk to our customers, we talk to people signing up, you know, they say, I don't want to give my data to X, you have it, and that's great. And, and secretly behind the scenes, I'm like, well, we don't technically have your data. It's just the human protocol, and you can get decide which data goes on there, and, and people have control of their own data. Um, you know, I've, I, I, I really do think it's, it's that reaction and, and resonation that's going on right now. But there's something in the air when you say to someone, hey, you know, there's this thing that you've got to go through all across the Internet. Do you want that tracking which website you're on? Um, Nowadays, people are getting a little bit cagey. So I, I, I wish I had a better answer, but it, it just seems like the zeitgeist is shifting. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad for you that you're, you're uh, riding that wave because, I mean, the, the level of adoption is, is, um, is insane. I mean, uh, you know, for any founder we've had on here, I don't think any of them could claim close to that level of uh, usage and adoption. So popping up there just for a second, you know, yeah. what, I, what I've seen, once again, on the age capture side, is, is the adoption, you know, the, the privacy thing is there. That came from the usage. But literally, all of the features, that we, and we have a lot of fancy features in our capture that other captures don't have. So they've known what they've wanted for a long time. The real question is, is was there going to be a vendor who's incentivized to provide the consumer with what they want? Because the reality is, you know, and I don't want to say anything mean about my competitors, but there are lots of people who use other capture solutions who monetize based on the amount of users they have. So if they bring in a stronger capture solution and now half their users are designated bots, that's not good for their bottom line. And we, we did a story about that a couple of years ago about how we compared to recapture. And I, and, and I think this goes back to one of the stories, which is like, are we going to let the incentives of kind of driving views to these big companies be what dominates the internet? Or do we want to decentralize things? Do we want to kind of say, okay, no one's going to own all the data. You're going to have control of what data you put out there. In fact, we're going to pay you if we're going to get any of your personal data. Um, you, you should be paid for that. And, and that, you know, it's, it's open source. There's a community that'll stand behind its security and privacy. Um, you know, that, that story um, is very powerful for people. And I think that overall, you know, we're going to see not just CAPTCHA moving this space, but the entire internet. And I'm really hoping, you know, Web3, which is something that you are excited about, you know, I, I, I don't know what tribe I am in crypto, but I am also super excited about Web3. I think that it's clear that 
that these are some of the applications that, that pop out of it. Um, and what's funny about the human protocol is it's very non-intuitive, this, this monetization of human labor. There's probably a hundred other things that are non-intuitive like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as you said at the beginning, H capture is just one part of it. It's and it's it's so fascinating that it's easy to focus on. But um, you know, this is this is generalizable. So it's a it's a generalizable distributed knowledge market. And so I just want to kind of go into like, can we explain how it functions? And you mentioned the word incentives. So it'd be good to understand um, how you've applied incentive design. And presumably, this is the crypto piece, right? How that um, incentivizes different behaviors or optimizes your network versus another in the context of a given use case. That's right. So what we've done is we've optimized our payout, though, based on the quality and quantity of your traffic. And there's more about that on the HCAPTURE website about the, about the details. They, they, they've done that, I should say. Um, you get paid more or less. So, so basically, the more bots you're bringing into the system, providing inaccurate labels, that kind of harms the amount that you get paid. And so we, we've created this incentive system where you know, we're driving real traffic. We'll protect you from any traffic. But what we really want to do is encourage the sites to have more and more human behavior. And um, you know, I think when you look at the human protocol more generally, there's kind of like um, we, we often talk about the, the, the pyramid of different types of users. So you know, anyone can solve CAPTCHA. So we, we designed that to not stress people out, not be something that provides special training. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things that pop out of CAPTCHA, right? Like, you know, you ask someone, is something a short sleeve shirt? You might get a different answer in Ireland versus Saudi Arabia, right? And that tells you something about um, probabilities um, and, and these subjective things. But, but, if you, but if you imagine a pyramid when the bottom is CAPTCHA with the least trained people, and as going up the pyramid, there's more and more training. So we had a bulk user program for a while. We were giving people much more advanced puzzles to solve via our system. Um, we can do the same thing. So, so, you know, as you, you know, the, what the protocol designs in the paper is that, you know, the bottom is kind of the least trained, the top, you know, you could imagine a world, you know, I'm excited about a world where we have radiologists in that bot square. Right. And so, you, you know, kind of, as you go up, you know, there's less and less verification, less and less things pretending to be bots, unless someone has a trained radiologist bot, which would be pretty awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I don't know how nice that would be. That would be that would change the world. Yeah, you know, I hope for that. Start um, out we, niche. We, yeah, yeah, exactly. Start out niche, right? But um, and, and so that that's and, and they all fit together, right? So CAPTCHA has no biases. It has no training, right? Anything up here on this training portion that biases because their training, their background, their country. So it's actually like when you think about this pyramid to get good answers, you really want to sample people up across the whole pyramid to kind of construct probabilities to hand a robot about certainties. I should also mention that in our world, when we look at a photo and um, there's like a picture, let's say of a, a truck in there, right? Um, you know, from, from y'all's point of view or a capture user's point of view, they'll be like, oh, for sure there's a truck in there. And then 60% of people will be like, for sure there's no car, but other people think trucks are cars, right? So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, the answer you get from capture is very powerful and without bias, and it helps make everything else more accurate. But the reality is, is that most of the, the really powerful value comes from the intermixing of experts and different levels of verification, all communicating with each other in a network. And so that, 
once you get into that world, it's not just labeling that you can support. It's actually, you know, I don't like talking about future applications just when I'm excited about this because I don't want I don't want to be Mr. Vaporware, you know. <laughs> I want to be I want to be like here's what we're really building. Um, but you know, when, when I get really excited about applications, it's it's kind of building stuff across that stack where they can plug into it and, and realistically in an open source manner. So, um, you know, when we talk about why you should trust these things, it's it's not just because of the privacy story. It's not just because of the stuff we've done for security. It's also the fact that we, the Human Protocol Foundation, kind of, you know, I, I took some of the tricks from the Apache Software Foundation on how to create a real independent technology community that makes decisions for the people based on technology and what's going to support them. Um, so, you know, when you when you think about that 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 infrastructure, we've got kind of you know, there's no one who's kind of controlling it. There's no one, you know, there's, there's kind of this meritocratic technological organization like you would see with Bitcoin kind of pushing, pushing those types of things forward. Um, and then finally, just by, um, you know, the, the act of, you know, how these things get decentralized, it, it, it kind of gives this whole story where, you know, people can join the Human Protocol Foundation, contribute to it at basically the same level that I do. If you look at the people who are working on the Human Protocol Foundation, mm -hmm who we've hired, almost all of them came to us via bounties, open source bounties, like literally posting issues. People came in, we said, hey, you got a couple good issues done. Let's bring you into the foundation. So, and so it's, it's very uh, open source. It's a lot closer to what you would see with a community like Kubernetes, the Apache Web Server Foundation, where there are people all around the world that really have this shared vision for humanity that are coming together in open source to develop this tool where the network gets all the value. And so to try to simplify it, grossly simplify it down, and then, then I think we can come back out because I do want to talk about some of those future use cases, perhaps towards the end, because I think that's it would be, it'd be a real waste to, to, to not go there with you. Um, but like in, in its most simple form, um, I think you describe it. There are there are some jobs that for now, anyway, humans are just better at, better at than machines. Um, and so that could be. Tra training a model, uh, training an ML model, right? Or it, it could be interfacing with a bot, a customer service bot, so it gets better at de delivering customer service, just to make it tangible for, for the audience. Yeah, I think, I think the way to think of it is we only send out the puzzles that we can't solve with ML. The images that people are seeing in HCAPTCHA weren't just like arbitrarily picked. Um, we serve the images that a state-of-the-art machine learning system can't label. And then we can use that to retrain our, our state-of-the-art machine learning label. So, so the issue is it's just that there's a certain percentage of words that cannot, you know, handwritten words that can't be translated. Um, there's a certain amount of images that can't be classified or pixel broken down. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton, kind of the godfather of ML, you know, says, you know, often talks about when we get, you know, perfect at the letter A. Like if we could just get machine learning to recognize the letter A as well as a small child, then we're set, you know, um, or I should say, you know, that's real progress, right? Like, so, so I think machine learning is so amazing. You can do all these tools, all, all these things. And it, and it just, it works way better than you expect. People who, who work with ML, the first thing they'll tell you is it works way better than I ever expected. But it's still fundamentally is, is, it's not as smart as us. It's not as ingrained in the world. So what we are doing with the human protocol is we're teaching the, the computers about things that it knows the least about. 
And what's fascinating is, without getting into the details, is we know how to get the computers to tell us what questions it knows the least about. And those are the things that are being served out to the human protocol. And so, yeah, you know, so it's actually to run human protocol, not even the CAPTCHA system, but just human protocol in general, you need one of the most state-of-the-art machine learning um, rigs in the world. Um, and, and effectively, that's how we decide what work to give out. So if we look at this, this uh, pyramid, as you described, this knowledge pyramid, and you, at the bottom, you've got all this low-level categorization, basically. Uh, maybe categorization is consistent throughout. It's just the, the level of complexity on, or specialist knowledge, the scarcity of knowledge that can carry out that task. So as you say, you know, it could be this very basic categorization for capture at the bottom. And then as you move up to the top, a radiologist, where there's maybe only a handful uh, on the planet that could have the capability to detect, um, you know, particular patterns. And, you know, presumably uh, at that point, once once the human or humans have trained the ML to be able to carry out that activity, um, that knowledge can then be, I mean, it's quite a loaded word, but I can't think of a better one, democratized, right? So as you said, it could be extended to any, any hospital anywhere in the world, including sub-Saharan Africa, right? And so that's like a very powerful concept. But then some, some questions start trickling through, and it'd be good to understand how you, how you solve for these, or at least how you're considering them at, at the human protocol. So, um, so on the one hand, you've got People so around this knowledge economy, you you have participation. People carry out tasks; they get paid for the tasks, and um, there's a premium placed upon the the, the bar of participating. Um, but what about ownership? So beyond that transaction, which could be very temporal, most of these will be temporal and, until the thing is trained to, to carry out that on its own behalf. So how do the people that participate in the system also um, share in the ownership of the human protocol success as a, as a whole? Yeah, that, I love that question. Um, so the interesting thing about CAPTCHA is users of it don't have a lot of choice. So their reward for CAPTCHA is access to the website. We've looked at, you know, we would love um, reassessing how that money is, is paid once we went to, let's say, um, and you can imagine World of Theorem 2 or one of these other chains where um, we can put a lot more stuff on chain. You can even imagine the user being directly rewarded at that point. Um, but for now, just because of the nature of chains, you know, on the CAPTCHA story, it's really the websites you can think of it as almost like an alternative to ads are making money by, by putting our CAPTCHA up. The other users of our system um, won't have that kind of abstraction. Most of the time, um, you know, you may have kind of hierarchy in your work pools, but most of the time, the more that we can kind of know exactly the user who's labeling in, in those work pools in a safe, privacy-preserving way, then we can effectively reward that individual and get them paid and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, you know, kind of as you go up the, the pyramid as well, probably the payment becomes more direct as well. Um, because you can imagine like, you know, at the tip of the top of that pyramid, you know, you've got some trained expert, you know, his name, probably have a contract. Right. And so, um, overall, you know, I think that, you know, we would like to see everyone in the system rewarded eventually when it, that's 
physically possible, um, just because we think that's going to have the clearest, best set of incentives. But um, for now, it's it's really as you go kind of up that value chain that they get more directly um, control over how much they're getting paid, what they're solving, when they're solving, all that type of stuff. Yeah, and so is the so you, you've kind of got this um, unit of account for payment for to, for the transactions that happen in the market. Now, pre- presumably, there's some scarcity in that, and so it could be considered a form of equity in the network. So if you're being paid paid out for a task, um, but you hold it rather than cashing it out for fiat, is is that is that not having a stake in the success of the network somehow? Or that's that's a great question. I'm not sure I should answer it though. So the um, <laughs> you know this goes back to what we were saying before, right? We want some interchangeable way of quantizing human labor, right? And so what are the what are the actions we imagine people are doing with that, that quanta, right? So sometimes it's, hey, I've got some of these quanta. Um, I want to get my value out in the form of information, right? Um, another thing that we're actually looking at is, okay, I've got these quanta. I want to spend that just to, to, to demonstrate that I'm human, right? So basically, the quanta is just a representation between a, a human robotic interaction. And the question is, is, you know, what is that interaction? How much does it cost? Um, you know, there's a free, you know, who can solve it? And, that, and that's going to get marketed, you know, to, to the right number in terms of when it gets served. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's this kind of this order book, right? And, and the more, and, and, you know, you've got this, this unit of, of human work. And so kind of the more capacity, the more interesting jobs you have, the more different types of puzzles going on, the more the type of tasks that we can do increases. So we've been mostly talking about labeling, but like I said, it could be any human work, right? Like um, there are lots of, I, there are lots of kind of rituals that human beings perform for other rituals in a professional and non-professional setting that it could all be um, done this way. So, um, so, so as it becomes more diverse, as it becomes more broad, as it can do more things, it becomes more valuable. As it gets more work into the network, it becomes more valuable. And arguably, and this is, I think, kind of the weirdest one, as people learn to value themselves more, and the time that they're spending, when they take control <laughs> over this thing and, and directly are interacting with each other, um, they get a bigger cut. So there's more, there's more value. So it, it's one of those things where our goal is just to make it work better, bring more value, make it cooler, and all that type of stuff, because it, it's a network effect, right? The more people, like imagine if some of our CAPTCHA contributors right? Not competitive. Other captures came to us and said, we want to join the human protocol as well. Now, you got to ask yourself, would that make the network more or less valuable to have more capacity, right? Normally, when you kind of bring more on, you reduce the scarcity, but in this case, what you're bringing on is value. And so you have the same amount of value chasing the same amount of um, quantization of human labor. And so I don't want to talk about scarcity or prices sure. or any sure, of that type sure. of stuff, but 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 I but I do think like in terms of value, you know, there's a clear network effect, and you know, in Silicon Valley, when we see these network effects, we go, oh wait, this is an exponential up in value, right? It's not even linear, right? And so um, that that's how I kind of think of how much it's worth, how to how this quantization works, because you know, ultimately, it's about you know. Um, monetizing 
or quantizing this human yeah. labor. And, and to be honest with you, so when I asked that question, it wasn't, um, it wasn't to get into actually trying to quantify the value of, of the token. It was much more around the concepts of ownership. And so, you know, how people begin to participate in the ownership of the network, because I, you know, there's, there's the transaction, there's the, the public good outcome. Um, and then, you know, over time, you could imagine, and I, the reason why I flagged it is because the project I mentioned earlier, um, uh, Botanic and then Seed was conceptually anyway, they were thinking about the idea of, well, if you were one participant that directly or indirectly, so indirectly just by providing your data or directly by carrying out some form of task, trained an AI, um, then wouldn't it be great if you could own it? If you were the, the specialist, well, what you don't want to do is make yourself redundant and what you ideally do is you, you want to kind of have a stake in the the digitization of your knowledge set um, and, it, and it's, you know, future success. It's, it, I mean, so now you're getting into some of the stuff I love with the foundation, which is how we're interacting with the other people in the data ML blockchain space. So I've already, I've already told you that, hey, why am I doing this? I think, you know, decentralization of this technology is important. Privacy is the other side of it, right? We're playing a critical role within the, the data and labeling ecosystem within the blockchain. But one of the amazing things that's happened is there were a lot of blockchain ML startups and the, a lot of them didn't make its way through the sieve. And we're actually starting to see who the, the real players are. So we actually have potentially great partners also on the blockchain that can help us with exactly what you're talking about, right? So, so you know, we're the ones who are providing the basically the capacity to train the bots. Other people, you know, are trying to bring, okay, what are the inputs that we want the bots to learn about? Um, other people may actually attempt to have this ownership bot um, model. I've seen a couple people trying to do that. And so I think that um, it's a little interesting uh, because I hope you don't find this too extreme, but I actually think that we could be in a world where ownership of bots uh, is immoral in a decade. By, by a corporate institution, you mean? So like a, a single corporate entity? If it, if it, if it has the, you know, there, there's a small chance that, that bots could be as human as us in a decade. And so, you know, uh, what does ownership okay. of mean? You know, um, yeah. and, and so, you know, I mean, they're not as smart as a pet yet. My cats are actually smarter than my AI <laughs> still. But, it, but, but the AIs are getting smarter a lot faster than my cats. And so, um, or me. They're definitely getting smarter faster than me. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably closer on the cat side at this late stage in my life. But, but so I think that, you know, right now we're talking about how does it own, how is it controlled? And I think there are a lot of people who are talking about safety. How do we use AI safety? Who controls the AIs? Who's benefiting from it? You know, as we're putting people out of work, how do we take care of those people? Um, and, and so I'm hoping that our economics in terms of, hey, you provide the training, you get the benefit at, you know, and, and as the value goes up, so does your benefit. You know, I'm hoping that that works out uh, naturally. But the reality is, is there's a lot of just kind of drudge work that's being done uh, by people that, um, you know, imagine a world where mortgages are 1% more efficient, right? Or medical paperwork is more than 1%. You know, I no, I'm I'm excited about all of these things, these kind of horrible jobs um, being automated, and the the kind of the person part of those jobs 
uh, being expanded, right? So, so we don't need um, we don't need to protect people from from drudgery. What we need to do or protect people from not having their drudgery. What we need to do is protect, you know, is is, is for people to have this role in the world where they can be on their prime, right? And so the, the example I always give is chess players. Gary Kasparov was beating the pants off a computer until, um, until you know, uh, with Deep Blue. And um, at that point, the world was like, oh, man, chess was beaten. You know, Go now. Even Go is beaten. But the one thing that's not known or talked about is that um, cyborg chess players beat the pants off of any computer. So you can actually take a adequate chess player, combine him with an AI, and he will beat the pants off of that same AI fighting alone. That's the future that we're trying to provide. Just like glasses allow us to see and give us more jobs, computer AIs are modern glasses that will allow us to see and do a wider variety of jobs. And to the extent that it provides new forms of literacy, mathematical literacy, competence in complex fields, it will in, it, it create make these fields a lot more productive and more efficient. Um, you know, if in the end there are half as many radiologists, but they're making twice as good a decision for half the cost, it's a bummer. You know, uh, that you know that's that's a that, that's a difficulty. But in the end, the people who benefit are the patients. So I, I think that from my point of view, you know, the things you're talking about automating the world are definitely something I'm concerned about. But what I'm more concerned about is it being centralized. Yes. This stuff is coming. It's actually almost here. A lot of it's being blocked by legislation. I talk to a lot of my colleagues in other countries, and rightly so, uh, they will have different trade-offs in terms of security and, and how they run their society. Um, you know, uh, my buddies in the UK say there are, are cameras in every block, and if their dog you know, takes a poop in the yard, then, you know, the town council will send them a ticket. And apparently, you know, some old nanny's got a videotape of their lawn all the time. Um, you know, in the U.S., we just don't do that, right? And so there, there, there are different trade-offs that, that people can make about how um, civil society is maintained. And, um, you know, I, I'm all for that. The reality, though, is the technology's coming. We have to figure out so that we all get a part of it. And crypto is, I, I mean, blockchain, I think, is, uh, is, is clearly working for that. Yeah, and I think that's something I'm, uh, I think we're aligned on in that, you know, I, I think the idea, so as you say, you're, there's, a, there's a free market like forming around these technologies and they're going to play out. Um, and, you know, you're providing currently a function within that. So in the, in the same way, people refer to some of the things that are happening in crypto as money Lego. I think here you could refer to it as AI Lego, right? This composable stack of technologies and markets, primarily driven by, um, you know, this, this kind of f f concept of free market fundamentalism, ultimately, that, that, that the market will drive um, value. Now, so to, to date, um, deliberately or, or accidentally, a lot of the activity that's happened on human has been directed by you guys and, and, and capture. Um, 
as an earlier you you alluded to the fact that there are there's some things that are the same about crypto and open source and being a contributor to that but there are a lot of things that are very different so you know you've had this great start how do you now as a foundation um allow the 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 protocol the, the human protocol to evolve um for new cases to emerge in 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 a way that doesn't require such direction mm. Yeah, I have to admit, I was a little naive starting a crypto startup. I think I've got my my feet under me about what the investors are looking at. I mean, realistically, you know, doing business in Silicon Valley with people who you know and have a multi-year relationship with, a little bit different than doing worldwide business. Um, and so, um, you know, we mostly got our feet under that with the foundation side, um, trying to expand the foundation to be an organization which effectively plugs into the best partners in crypto is kind of what we're doing now. So, so there are a couple ways that that plugs in. One, um, there's lots of great technology coming out in crypto that may allow us to have, put stuff more on chain, faster, all that stuff. So those are those are important partners that we have, right? It's just improving that core substrate that we're running on top of. Um, the second bit, um, in, ter- in terms of, you know, how do we actually... Um, you know, how do we actually work with people is, is kind of those data providers. So people are providing data sets and all these different use cases we were talking about. Um, I don't want to name names, but, you know, there'll be more and more people coming out uh, to do that type of stuff. And then finally, there's kind of, you know, what I really want to do uh, and can't wait to provide is kind of the, the hookup to those uh, legacy infrastructure providers, um, hooking into other infrastructure providers, other implementation team and protocol. You know, we've talked about... Um, uh, capture some some of the, the the human protocol things that we did in previous experiments, some of the stuff, some applications that we have going on. But realistically, there's all sorts of any interaction between a human and a computer that's privacy prote- protected and interesting where we want to uh, save that money. I really do think that um, or, or say or you know or, or capture capture that data, and um, I really do think that you know. I mean, like, I would love for someone to come and say, hey, we want to donate this new open source analytics stack, you know, like an open source Google analytics stack to the human protocol. And we want that to, to join in to capture that human data, right? You know, and, and so just, just really, I think this is stuff that you and I are both passionate about is imagining a new internet where we really do have control about what is released about us. And, and by the way, this shouldn't be that controversial, right? This is the law in Europe, right? Europe, you have the, you know, the right to be forgotten, right? So you have some control there. And I think that we need to build that infrastructure. And once we build that infrastructure, all the other things that I was talking about, decentralization of the power of data, giving people a, a, a share of this new AI community, I think it all falls out of it. I'm, I'm not actually like a, a free market fundamentalist certainly not, not for crypto um but on the other side i think it's interesting to consider um you know what, what we're really what what a lot of those libertarian tendencies is all about is really about volunteerism and i don't and, and not being you know compelled um and I, i'm not sure about libertarianism and i know i think it's got some good things i think there's some limits but but I'm really into the, this idea of people being sovereign, making their own choices, making their own mistakes. I think that's the world that people want to live in, at least 
you know, and so, and so everything about the human protocol is really about giving people that control because when we are interacting with humans and robots, it's very important that people feel that they're not being taken for a ride, you know, that they, that they really are doing this in a voluntary way that they're putting on glasses, right? They're not, um, they're not becoming a slave to the machine or something horrible like that, right? They're, they're just putting on a new shade of glasses so that way they can live their life and, and see, see more clearly. That, that's really the, the vision that we have and, and why it's kind of the foundation is kind of set up to be this independent organization to enable that. But it is, it is primarily a technological organization. Um, you know, we do have um, some really uh, good uh, people who have a lot of experience in the data space, Lonnie, uh, who, who we were talking about something with ops, you know, she was CEO of metal and it's kind of revolutionized that whole medical space. Um, so, so I think that, you know, we'll kind of, you know, have these kind of industry experts who, who who all have the same view that are trying to pushing this network effect. So that way, you know, the, the each quanta of human labor becomes more and more flexible and valuable. Yeah. And look, I, I think um, for me, how I would define or I would define the importance of what I call Web3, and I know that can, can seem quite loaded. It's actually not not just in an Ethereum context. Like for me, it's a, a, a catch-all. Um, but, you know, really, there are three internets. There's, there's or, and you know, or three webs, right? I, I, you know, the internet and web, of course, is a bit of a distinction. But you've got surveillance capitalism. That is the established norm. You have, as you say, platforms that dominate the web. They have um, data monopolies. Platform monopolies have data monopolies have AI monopolies. And that, that is a direction that I think we can... All agree from the legislature down to the citizen is is probably not going to end well. Um, you have, and, and at the heart of that is um, shareholder supremacy. The idea that the the rights of the shareholder of the company that owns the AI is more important than its users. You then have something that's kind of coming from the east, which is digital statism. That, that ultimately everything's subordinated to the state, um, and you know that can be, of course. Uh, if benevolent, hugely valuable because it's training this you know, large data sets to train an AI to make society function better, but in, in the wrong hands uh, could uh, could um, be dystopic. And then there is something in the middle. And it, it, as a European, it feels intuitive, but I, I don't think it's so obvious, which is, which is this Web3 uh, paradigm, which is that user centricity, user citizen centricity. And so uh, I, I really subscribe to... To your vision there. I am friends with a lot of people at Google who work on these problems. They're some of the nicest people in the world, and the last thing they want to do is surveillance capitalism, right? And, and you brought up all these shareholder concerns, but the reality is, and they get this as well, that their, their data is more valuable when it's more scarce. Like, them just having all the data means that each one of those data is worthless, right? And so it's actually scarcity that provides the value of the data. So, so, so like actually, you know, Google and all the capitalist functions of the world, let's go over to the status, right? I don't want to say anything about any particular country, but these countries that people view as highly centralized are actually incredibly distributed. Yes. Um, on a you know, provincial and, level and a regional on level. A, yeah. You know, there are now more Chinese banks than American banks. There are more local Chinese banks than American banks. American banks, straight down. Chinese banks, number straight up. And so, 
it's very interesting because I think in the West we have almost the Soviet view of these countries when they're quite capitalist. <laughs> they're quite yeah, distributed. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of power there. And once again, they're just people, you know? And so I think what I love about the human protocol is it really is a best of world, right? We can get the people who are the data barons, we can actually get them more money for the data they have. And they can sleep better at night knowing that it's protected and their industry standards and everything's working across the world more cleanly. Um, and even these other states that have, in my opinion, serious concerns about public safety, scalability of the governments of their economy. Um, there are real, there is real stuff there as well. You know, it's not solely a power grab. Those types of people, when this capability is brought onto a transparent blockchain, it changes everything. It changes. What if, you know, um, all of this data that people were using, you know, to keep their society safe was fundamentally controlled access in a way that actually created a new, you know, digital judicial system, one that that is more framed for a modern world. So, I, I you know, I'm, maybe it's just because I'm an eternal technological optimist, but I actually think that this is the solution to what you described as surveillance capitalism. That this is actually the solution to state control of data. And actually, you know, if we take, uh, you're in the UK right now? Yes. I, I hear you're actually, yeah. If you take your example, I think that's a really easy one to understand, right? You guys have got cameras everywhere to assure public safety. Um, right now, it's interesting who has access to them. What if that access was a bit more, uh, uh, controlled, careful, monitored, maintained. So if some person in the head of the town council, let's say, got hacked, and then all that data got out, it wouldn't be a huge data leak. There would still be some type of controls and monetization, all that stuff built into it, right? So I think that, you know, before we go all the way to, to Asia, which, you know, I'm always in the, amazed by and so much activity going on, even just in our boring Western world uh, that's moving so slow, like these are real problems for us as well. And I actually think this is just, infrastructure where people can buy in and do the right thing and make money, you know, and when you, when you can get that, those two together, do the right thing and make money working together and making more money, the more you do the right thing, you get people doing the right thing more. That's just my optimistic view. Yeah. And look, and I, I, um, I think that's a great place to end. I like to end on an optimistic note and you're totally right. Of course, this is a universal human problem, which is, is probably quite apt given the name of the protocol. And I'm, I'm really excited to see, um, how this AI Lego forms around an open data economy. You know, we were also an investor in um, Ocean Protocol, which is doing some really cool things now with the IDO, the initial data offering. They've just been uh, testing that a little bit. Um, Fetch.ai that are doing autonomous economic agents and some AI Lego. And then the Secret Foundation have got secret contracts, so uh, privacy preserving smart contracts. And I can I can just see how the compatibility of all of these things, because they're all open source, how they begin to interplay. It, it's, it's difficult to feel that that can't be net positive somehow. So I'm really looking forward to seeing your continued contribution to space. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Thanks, Pam. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.